He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, and his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Some time ago, a friend of mine took me out to dinner in one of these uh, subterranean restaurants where they love darkness rather than light. <laughs> I stumbled into this dimly lit dungeon and fumbled for a chair and mumbled that I needed a flashlight with which to read the menu. When the food came, I ate it by faith and not by sight. <laughs> Gradually, however, you know how it is, I began to make out objects a little more distinctly, and my friend remarked, funny, isn't it, how you get used to the dark? And I said, thank you, you have given me a suggestion for a new sermon, getting used to the dark. First of all, we are living in the dark. We are living in the closing chapter of an age dominated by the prince and the powers of darkness. Men do love darkness rather than light. The night is far spent. And this blackness is more extensive and more intensive and more excessive as it deepens just before the dawn. Mammoth Cave is not limited to Kentucky. It's universal now. We're all living in Mammoth Cave. Strangely enough, we've never had more artificial illumination and less light. Bodily, man walks today in unprecedented brilliance, but his soul dwells in unmitigated night. He can release nuclear glory that outdazzles the sun, but his head has gotten so far ahead of his heart that with that glory he plans his own destruction. He can put satellites in the sky, but left to himself he is a wandering star to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. The depths of present-day human depravity are too vile for any word in our language to describe. We are not seeing now ordinary moral corruption. We're seeing it double distilled and compounded in weird and uncanny and demonic combinations and concoctions of iniquity never heard of a generation ago. And this putrefaction of the carcass of civilization awaiting the vultures of judgment, to use our Lord's own figure, is not peculiar to Skid Row. It shows up in the top brackets of society. There are plenty of prodigals now living morally among the swine, although garbed in purple and fine linen. 
Bishop Kilgo used to say, there is no difference in reality between the idle rich and the idle poor, the crowds who loaf in gorgeous hotels and the crowds who tramp the land in rags, no difference except in the cost of their wardrobes and the price of their meals. The scriptures speak of gross darkness. You remember Brother Newell telling us about the colored preacher down here somewhere who said gross darkness was 144 times darker than ordinary darkness. Well, uh, man lives in concentrated uh, night, and even his nuclear flashlight cannot pierce it. Uh, we not only live in the dark, but we get used to it, and that is what concerns me so much these days. There is a slow and subtle and sinister brainwashing process going on today that is gradually desensitizing us to evil. Uh, maybe you have read some of Vance Packard's books in the last few years. He gets after the advertising business today and this new highbrow combination of high-pressure salesmanship and psychology, which is called motivational research. And speaking of one... Uh, certain business that deals in very questionable material. He said, one of the main jobs of the advertiser in this conflict between pleasure and guilt is not so much to sell the product as to give moral permission to have fun without guilt. Now that's the trick of the trade today, and it's being worked for all that it's worth. Uh, little by little, sin is made to appear less sinful until the light within us becomes darkness. And when that happens, how great is that darkness. Our magazines are loaded with sordid crime. The newsstands with corruption. We're engulfed in the tidal wave of pornographic filth. TV has put us in the dark more ways than one with Sodom and Gomorrah in the living room. And the worst of it is we get used to it. Christians do acclimated to it. We accept it as a matter of course. We get used to its language and its art and its literature and its music. And we learn to live in it without an inner protest. We no longer hate that which is evil. We no longer abhor that which is evil. We no longer abstain from the very appearance of evil. We get used to the dark. I know that Lot was a righteous man. But he moved into Sodom, you remember, and lived in it and became mayor, maybe, sat in the gate. I know that his righteous soul was vexed from day to day with their unlawful deeds, but he lost his influence with his family and had to flee for his life and died in disgrace. I've met a lot of lots in the last few years. And as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. They tell us now that we ought to get chummy with Sodom and hobnob with Gomorrah in order to convert them. But uh, the end does not justify the means. We are stretching this Jesuit doctrine today so far that we're including things <laughs> that are would be ridiculous if it weren't that apparently a lot of people seem to believe them. Uh, you remember that Lot did not convert Sodom. And people who take this position are not turning the light on in Sodom, they're just getting used to Sodom. Now the worst of all this is that we not only live in the dark and get used to the dark, but we get to where we think it's getting brighter. 
If you sit around in a dark room long enough, you imagine that more light is breaking in. And so may men dwell so long in darkness that they fancy the day is dawning. What some people are calling the birth pangs of a new age right now are only the dying gasps of this one. The scene is not getting any brighter. We're just getting used to the dark. We call it broad-mindedness and tolerance, and actually it's peaceful coexistence with evil. It is an effort to establish communion between light and darkness and to be a friend of the world and a friend of God simultaneously. This condition extends now to evangelical Christianity. It is possible to fraternize with unbelievers until false doctrine becomes less and less objectionable, until we come to terms with it and would incorporate it into the fellowship of faith. Some begin by opening the doors to borderline sects and cults who believe almost like we do. Others find Pope John's overtures attractive now, as though they were ready to worship not only our Lord but also Our Lady. And then there are others who would make a crazy quilt of the religions of the world, a syncretism, they call it, which uh, they say is a sort of a mixture of the best in all religions. Syncretism, you understand, is just a highfalutin word for hash. <laughs> I heard of a fellow who had hash for dinner and they asked him how he felt. said he felt like everything. <laughs> well, uh, what we have today is a syncretism. This uh, sort of a mulligan stew and how these theological chefs are cooking up this broth back in the uh, kitchen and uh, they're recommending it. Take the best out of this and the best out of that and let's have it all together and include the best in Christianity. And we shall have a world faith, which is exactly what we're going to have, along with a world church and a world state and a world what have you, all the way down the line. Now the same danger that exists in the world of doctrine exists in the world of conduct. It is possible, beloved, to live in a twilight zone until one finds the practices of this world less repulsive. We say that our mind is broadening when our conscience is stretching. We renounce what we call Phariseeism and Puritanism of our early days and boast that we have taken in more territory and have extended the boundaries of our uh, moral latitude today to include things we once abhorred. We have a good word now for worldly practices and instead of passing up Vanity Fair as the pilgrims did in Bunyan's immortal Pilgrim's Progress, we spend vacations there. We prefer the borderline to Beulah land and we ask preachers these days, what's wrong with this and why can't I do that? Which of course shows that you're on the wrong foot to begin with or you wouldn't even ask the question. When people start asking things like that, they're really asking, how near the precipice can I go without going over? Why don't they ask, how near the Lord can I live instead of asking, how near the, to the world can I live and still be a Christian? Don't you see what a faulty thing that is on the very face of it? It shows that they've gotten off to the wrong start to begin with. You remember what Bunyan said about the Christians at Vanity Fair? in this matchless prose and as they that is the proprietors of the fair now two kinds of people here they the proprietors of the fair and the pilgrim get it and as they the proprietors of the fair wondered at their apparel so they did likewise wonder at their speech 
for a few can understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan, but they that kept the fair were men of this world. So from one end of the fair to the other, they seemed barbarians to each other. Now let me ask you, do you think the average Christian today, in the light of this context, seems a barbarian to the keepers of Vanity Fair now? Why, they don't know the difference. The operators of Vanity Fair would see very little difference now in the apparel. And that's what they looked at first, then, and the conversation and the conduct of most church members today. You know what uh, Alexander Pope said, vice is a monster of such frightful mien as to be hated neat but to be seen, yet seen too oft familiar with her face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. Gradually we get used to the dark. Gradually we fall into the setup of this age. If the proprietors of Vanity Fair today could watch the average church member, especially in the summertime, wearing in public a garb in which they should never have left the house or even come downstairs, would they not seem barbarian? to each other. I'm always glad when the fall of the year comes and the saints get back in their clothes, if not in their right minds. <laughs> this thing is, is imperceptible, and gradually we fall into it. Uh, this business of uh, giving up Sunday night uh, to television when once we went to the house of God, one doesn't do that all of a sudden. I think it starts with saying, well, just this once, I would like to see, I've heard so much about this, and so uh, tonight I will, I, I would like just once to see what Ed Sullivan's like, so here it goes, and then next Sunday night it's easier to look at Ed Sullivan than it is to hear the Word of God, and by the third night, why, the weight is entirely on the other side, and so we go. Now, uh, Dr. Fleece, in these matchless messages at the breakfast table, has been... Uh, getting down into the depths of our hearts and this morning you uh, you couldn't forget what he said about the cleansing of the temple that you remember the Lord cleansed that temple twice and the first time he said you've made it a house of merchandise and the second time you've made it a den of thieves now it started off just a house of merchandise and I think it started off innocently and they thought well now it won't hurt just a just to have this little thing in the church, just this one little thing. It's, I, I'll agree, it's not out and out spiritual, but uh, uh, just it won't make much difference. And so they bring in just a little bit of merchandise. And then next thing you know, they brought in a little more merchandise. And a few years later, you've got it in a thieves. It's a slow business. Here's how it works. There was a time when sin shocked us, and maybe you knew such a time, but as the brainwashing progresses, what once amazed you now amuses you. A secular journal said the other day, the desensitization of 20th century man is more than a danger to the common safety. There are some things we have no right ever to get used to. One is brutality, and the other is the irrational. Both have now come together and are moving toward a dominant pattern. And we're used to it. 
our, the children of this land, the little folks, are being allowed to look at murder by the hour, looking, uh, allowed to look at the most gross iniquity and used to it before ever they reach their king. We laugh at the shady joke. And tragedy becomes comedy. And beloved, whenever a land gets to the place where it laughs at what it ought to weep about, then judgment's just around the corner. And we are laughing today. We are cracking jokes about divorce and about drunkenness and all the rest of it. And what ought to put us on our faces before God weeping for such iniquity has become a thing that even Christians sometimes find it easy to joke about. I heard a preacher tell a doubtful joke to a man of this world some time ago. Evidently, he wanted to give the impression that I'm hail fellow well met. There's no difference. Don't put us preachers up on a pedestal. I'm one with you. Uh, but he was accommodating himself to the dungeon of this age, and I could tell from the answer that man of the world gave him that the preacher had made a fool out of himself because the man of the world expected no such comment. And then I remember Dr. Jowett's wonderful statement when he was preaching to preachers, we are tempted to leave our noontide lights behind in our study and to move among men with a dark lantern which we can manipulate to suit our company. We pay the tribute of smiles to the low business standard. We pay the tribute of laughter to the fashionable jest. We pay the tribute of easy tolerance to ambiguous pleasures. We soften everything to a comfortable acquiescence. We seek to be all things to all men to please all. We run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. We become the victims of illicit compromise. And there is nothing distinctive about our character. The housewife who moves out to suburbia and wants to go along with the group spirit of the community faces this same temptation. And so does the organization man now at the boss's party or the student on a pagan campus. There are all kinds of new techniques on how to socialize at Vanity Fair. But Bunyan's pilgrims had the right idea. We're not here to learn how to live in the dark, beloved. We're here to learn how to walk in the light. Not how to get along with evil, but how to overcome evil with good. And one of the signs that we're getting used to the dark is the way we call sin by new names today. Once it was adultery, and now it is free love. Now a drunkard is a respected alcoholic. Once it was sodomy, and now it's homosexuality. The murderer is just temporarily insane. Church workers fall into sin and move on to new positions without repentance or change of conduct. Parents let down on discipline say, what's the use? All the other children down the block are doing this. All the other parents allow it. I can't stand out like a sore thumb in this community. What's the use? And pastors give up preaching against sin. And they say, well, these things are here to stay. And church members aren't going to be any better. I remember one who told me some time ago, he said, I... I preached against dancing in my former pastorate, and my young people didn't like it. And he said, I'm, I'm not doing things like that anymore. He said, I'm going along with it. Might as well ride the bandwagon, in other words. Let's go with the drift. These things are here to stay, yes. The devil's here to stay till the end of the age, but that doesn't mean that we're to go along with it. Liquor's here to stay, I think. But that's no reason why it should be legalized. Television's here to stay, but that means that you are not to give up control of those knobs and put the whole business under the domination of the Spirit of God as he directs your life. It's easy to accept the status quo. We've got a new generation now, and sometimes older ministers think they are being very charitable 
when they say, well, let the young people take over, we've had our day. This is a new generation, it must set its own standards. My friend, the generation doesn't set the standard. The standard's been set a long time ago, and as Homer Hammontree said some time ago in my hearing, if a thing was wrong 50 years ago, it's wrong now. And if it's right 50 years ago, it's right now. And this idea, where did we ever get that notion? That the generation sets the standard. Now the world is in the dark because it rejects the light of the world. Verse 19 tells us what the test is. The test is that light has come into the world, and this is the condemnation. This is the test by which men are judged, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because the deeds are evil. Very interesting to note that the word there, translated condemnation, is in the original, the word crisis. The word from which you get critical and criterion. This is the test by which men are judged. Uh, when Jesus came to this world, you see, he precipitated the crisis because he compels men in the very nature of things either to come to the light or abide in the darkness. Now this light shines in the Savior. I am the light of the world. It shines in the scriptures. The entrance of thy words giveth light. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And it shines in the saints. Ye are the light of the world. It shines in the Savior. It shines in the scriptures. It shines in the saints. Verse 20 tells you why some people don't come to church. It did me a lot of good to find this out years ago. It explains a lot of things about church going. Everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. I remember in my first country pastorate near Elizabeth City, there was a little woman there. She was a good Christian. She came to church on Sunday night, and her husband was an unbeliever. He was one of these sour, cantankerous, uh, unlovely characters. He brought her, and she'd come in, sit down. I remember over to the right. He'd stay out in the car, out in the dark. More ways than one. And you know why he stayed out in the dark? He couldn't face the light. He didn't want the light turned on, and he knew that it would be turned on if he came in there because the word of God would be preached. And then I thought, well, now, here they are, both of them, in this verse. Verse 20 describes that old boy. God help him. He's loving the darkness. And that's why he's out there. But this good woman lives in verse 21. She that doeth truth cometh to the light, that her deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. That explains it. That explains a lot of church situations today. Did you ever walk across a field on a sunny day and you overturned a large stone and the moment the sunlight struck underneath, all the creeping and crawling things began hurrying and scurrying for cover? Something like that happens to your sinful heart when the light of God breaks in and you get uneasy and you're restless and you can't enjoy the meeting. It's because you have been exposed to the light. When you're in a dark cellar, you can't see the spiders and the snakes and the lizards and the toads till the light comes in. And then you see what company you're with. And so we are not aware of the darkness until the light breaks into our souls. No wonder some people live in the world all week and then come to church on Sunday morning and if the preacher fearlessly preaches the word of God, they begin to wince and to squirm and to blink their eyes. They have photophobia. They're afraid of the light. And our business as Christians 
is to let this light shine. The Bible says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Turn the light on them, not so much by public denunciation, although that has its place, not in Pharisaic self-righteousness, but by the contrast of godly living. You can't shovel the darkness out, but you can turn on the light. Any Christian can turn on the light. You're the light yourself, the light of Christ within you shining. You can turn on the light. And they need a light in a dark place. Sometimes I think that as precious as Christian fellowship is, we overdo it sometimes. We enjoy each other when we're living in a world of darkness and we need to get out there and let our light shine. It's the sick folks that need the doctor, not the well. And sometimes I think that a lot of our energy is misdirected and a lot of our time is spent. I was in a furniture store some time ago. I went into the room where they had the lamps and they had a room full of lamps and all of them turned on. You never saw such a dazzling place. They just had too much light. They didn't need that many lamps. And I thought about some churches where on Sunday morning they try to out-dazzle each other when they need to be out in the dark places where the light is needed. My father uh, used to run a little country store and I always liked the time of year to come when the box of garden seeds came. It sort of was a promise of things to come, you know. And we'd prize the lid off, and here were these pretty things and all their lovely little packages, the beets and the tomatoes and the lettuce and the cabbage and all the rest of it. Of course, we never could grow tomatoes that looked like the ones on those envelopes, but it was nice to look at them just the same. And I used to think, now as pretty as all these packages are, we wouldn't have had a tomato that summer if we'd left them the seeds in the packages. They had to be put into the dirty old earth and lose their own identity and come up again. And then I thought of what my Lord said, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. And do you know, beloved, I've stood in church on many a Sunday morning and looked over a well-dressed congregation that looked just like that box of garden seeds. Everybody in their red and their green and their blue and their pink, pretty. And a lot of it wasn't amounting to much. And it hadn't been planted. The greatest need today is not packaged fundamentalism, but planted fundamentalism. A lot of it's just packaged. We never had more different assortments of packages today with all our exclusiveness and our little isms and cults and what have you. We need to be uh, emptied out of these packages and put into the ground and die and come up again to the glory of God. Now back to the light figure. Our Lord said two things would smother the candle of our testimony. And you never needed a dictionary when you went to hear the Lord. One was a bushel and the other a bed. And the bushel stands for commercialism, money-making, the love of money, which is the root of all evil. And the bed represents luxury and ease, resting at ease in Zion. Then I think we dim our light in another way, maybe. We turn it down for fear of disturbing the ungodly. We're so afraid of being offensive that we're no longer effective. And we shade the light to match the dim dungeon of this age. And we'd rather grieve the Holy Spirit than disturb the wicked. The early Christians didn't mind that a bit in the world. They struck a light to match the need of the hour. Paul exceedingly troubled Philippi, and even in prison at midnight turned night to day. 
And the saints in Rome lighted the streets with their burning bodies. And they met down in catacombs, but they illuminated the world. We're a city set on a hill, not hidden underground. We're to shine as lights in the world. <clears throat> it's no time to get used to the dark. It's time to turn on the light. The caverns of this world have been undisturbed too long. Of course some of these cave dwellers will squirm, but others will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. What communion hath light with darkness? We're not here to commune with it. We're here to conquer it. And this is the victory that conquers it, even our faith. Early Christianity set the world aglow because it was absolute light against absolute darkness. The first Christians believed that the gospel was the only hope of the world, and without it all men were lost, and all other religions false. They were not in favor of any syncretism. Today, we're developing a new type of church member who thinks there is some darkness in our light and some light in the world's darkness. And we half believe our own gospel and half believe the religions of this world. And we're creeping around in the dark when we ought to be flooding the world with light. We need to get our candles out from under beds and bushels and take off the shades of compromise and let them shine in hearts and homes and businesses and communities. And remember, when you turn on that light, you're turning on the only light that makes any difference in this dark world. Nothing in this universe tonight makes any sense whatever except in the light of Jesus Christ. The reason why the summit conferences never get anywhere, those fellows are working in the dark. The reason why the UN never settles our problems, there's a vacant chair in those deliberations. They're working in the dark. Joseph Parker used to have a great sermon on the stupidity of the specialist. And his text was the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. These were experts, these builders, but they left out this cornerstone, this stupidity of the specialist. And oh, what stupidity today is trying to build the edifice forgetting that except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. You young fellow here tonight, don't get the delusion in your head that if I get enough education, I can see my way alone. No. Education, somebody has said, gives us spokes for our wheel, but doesn't give us a hub. And what good are spokes without a hub? And that hub is Jesus Christ, because by him all things consist, and all things hold together. And if you haven't, if your life's not built around him, then it's just spokes. It's aimless. It's like trying to put the puzzle together without the centerpiece. I've read of a little girl who had torn up a map of the United States and was trying to reassemble it and couldn't. Maine would be right beside Minnesota and California would be right beside Georgia and she couldn't get it together. And then she remembered that on the reverse side of the map there was a picture of George Washington. And she didn't know what George Washington looked like. And when she got that together, she had the map together. Now, if you're going to try to put life together until, first of all, you have looked in the face of Jesus Christ, it's a hopeless business. But when you've looked in his face, then all things fall into their proper place. So that one might sing that old song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus Look full in his wonderful face. 
and everything else will have meaning and sense in the light of his glory and grace. And that's the only way they'll ever have any sense. And I have a feeling that some of you have tried to put life together for a long time and left out the centerpiece. And if you'd only be honest enough and humble enough to admit it and come to the Savior and say, Lord Jesus, I've made a wreck out of this thing. I can't get it together. I would look into thy face. I invite thee into my heart. By thee all things hold together. Take my life and let it be consecrated. Lord, to thee. And you'll put sense and meaning into it. <clears throat> this is the crisis. It's not Berlin. This is the crisis. This is the test by which men are judged. That light has come into the world. And it shines in the Savior. And it shines in the Scriptures. And it shines in the saints. I wonder tonight. Uh, here's the week over half gone. And some of you have heard enough gospel. And you've seen enough light this week alone. To have changed your course from darkness. Into the light of his blessed will. You haven't done anything about it. I know that you're tired tonight. Because I faced congregation for a long time and uh, I know it isn't even good psychology to tell you that you're tired but I don't want us to be too tired tonight to give God a chance well you rouse yourself and pull yourself out of the languor into which you are and sometimes my friends this is not physical these days not physical alone I tell you we're against the powers of darkness and in a week like this and especially at a time like this and at a point like this in the week, Satan comes in and uses every strategy and every device and pours upon us a spirit of deep sleep, as Isaiah said, and makes us heavy, heavy in body, mind, spirit, so that we don't want to rouse ourselves and stir up ourselves to take hold of God. There are a number of people in this congregation for whom prayer has gone up, there are people here tonight, some who are Christians, who have not taken their candle out from under the bushel in the bed. They need to take the shade off and let their light shine to the glory of God. You're not living a dedicated, fully surrendered life, and you ought to do it. And you ought to come down this aisle tonight and say, Too long have I been ashamed of my Lord. I have had a shade over the testimony and the witness of my life. I want to let him have absolute control.